0: Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 122. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler and author, Bill Barry. Before we talk to Bill about his new book, Stories That Move, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Bill Barry welcome to drop everything podcast number 122 my very special guest mr bill berry hi bill hey dan how you doing bud or should i say author bill berry is that the new title yeah that that is the new title i'm still getting used to that one it's very exciting and it's nice to see someone who's transitioned through so many different levels of juggling from the career to the team, through the, the end of the team, to the solo work, and now transitioning out of juggling a little bit and expressing your creativity in other ways. I really can appreciate that.
1: Yeah, continuing to evolve and grow. And I think about, uh, there's so many comedians and entertainers who start out in movies, like Tom Hanks comes to mind. He, he, he was doing almost all comedy in the beginning, but then later in his career, he kind of t- started to explore more dramatic stuff. and. I think it's important as artists to to explore lots of different things. So, so I'm I'm working on that myself.
0: Yeah. Now Tom is being replaced by artificial intelligence, so he's also going through a lot of changes. Absolutely. So we don't even need Tom Hanks <laughs> uh, anymore. So we we should all prepare ourselves. I saw an article the other day. It was uh, should authors be afraid of AI? And I think I think yes. Yeah. What should authors be afraid of AI? It's just the coming wave. We're where, Artificial intelligence could write as well, especially if given certain specifics, as a, as popular authors. Kind of a scary idea.
1: You know, I, I've thought a lot about that, and uh, maybe somebody listening to this will take this idea. But I've I've thought. I wonder if somebody's going to come out with the uh, the AI free seal, where where you can put the AI free seal on your book if you mm. didn't use AI to write the book, so we know it's non AI. But well, if you're using Grammarly. Does that eliminate the seal <laughs> right. of AI authenticity? And uh, Yeah, I feel like some of the things that have happened with, with clean food and organic and how those labels have kind of not held true to their original ideas in, in all ways. I wonder if they would do the same thing or maybe somebody will come up with something like that.
0: It's like a Grammarly, uh, it also re- gives you recommendations. Like, wouldn't you prefer to write it like this? You're like, oh, that does sound bad. Right. <laughs> so I guess that is a cheat, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah,
1: I wonder about But But at the same time, if if you're using real life stories and real life examples from your own experience, I don't, AI might be able to eventually genuinely make stuff up, but it'll never be able to make up your exact experiences. Like, uh, there's one story that I'm so excited to put into book number two, where uh, Jonathan and I were getting off of a cruise ship in Jamaica. And we ended up in the middle of a shootout where somebody was robbing the casino. It was our, our first time in Jamaica. We'd been there 15 minutes and bullets are flying over our heads yeah, there was this really wonderful magical moment that uh, happened amidst this. And AI could never have come up with this. Stranger than fiction, how it unfolded. So, so I don't think AI is, <laughs> we're in danger of being immediately replaced. But if anything, I think it almost has more of a danger of bringing us all towards more of a, a centralized view where we're losing some of the
0: diversity of thought and ideas. So I don't know, we'll see. We'll see. And from what I know about Jonathan Root, He's always strapped, right? He's always carrying a piece, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> so Not in Jamaica. <laughs> not in Jamaica, right. But if you if you need someone at your back, it's Jonathan Root.
1: Oh, you know, we had our back in
0: the best possible ways and still do
1: and have. And yeah, there there are so many, I mean, you know, being in a team, there, there are so many times where uh, just having somebody there to, I mean, heck, if you're traveling in another country and because you didn't tell your credit card company that you were going to be out of the country and they turn off your card because they think it's fraudulent activity. And you're like, hey, can you check in all my bags because my credit card's been shut off? Or there's just a thousand ways you can look out for each other as a duo that more than make up, in my opinion, for, uh, for the reduction in pay.
0: <laughs> well, we'll talk a lot about your career with Team Rootberry. But since so many of this, the stories in this first book uh, revolve around your childhood, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where were you born and uh, what was your childhood like? Well, I was born in California,
1: San Bernardino County specifically, and then uh, my parents were together until my, uh, my teenage years, and I had three older brothers, and uh, yeah, well, pretty, uh, to me, normal childhood. I'm, I'm learning more as I have written about my childhood and shared more of it, that it wasn't necessarily the most normal childhood in all ways, but it seemed normal to me. It was the only one I had. And,
0: uh, <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, I'm sure that's for all of us. It seems normal.
1: Right. Right. I mean, yeah. How, how do we define normal or is there even such a thing? But, uh, but yeah, I learned, uh, juggling specifically in fifth grade, this guy came to our school and he stayed for, I don't know if people do this today, but at the time, this is how he did it. He showed up on Monday and he was teaching juggling skills out during recess and at lunch. And he was handing out these little flyers where, you know, this was before Amazon, if you wanted the, the days of mail order, so if you wanted to get juggling equipment from him, you had to take this little flyer home to your parents and fill it out and bring a check and order rings and balls and a diablo or whatever you wanted but um i was I was just petrified of him and too shy to actually go talk to him, but I did get one of the flyers someone's desk and uh, ordered some juggling equipment and uh, over the next couple of weeks taught myself how to juggle but i'll I'll never forget at the end of the week on Friday he ended up doing a little juggling show and I was just so amazed and being a kid, I, I immediately thought someday that's what I want to do for a living. Wouldn't that be the greatest thing? And (laughs) it was, you know, just kind of the whimsy of a child. I didn't really think much about it, but when my juggling clubs and rings came, I learned to throw it behind the back and under the leg. And then I was, I'm doing air quotes better than anyone else I knew. So, uh, I kind of put it down and into uh, middle school, high school, I was playing soccer and then got into hacky sack and really didn't think that juggling was going to be a career option by any stretch of the imagination. But, uh, but yeah, ended up getting out of high school, working a bunch of part-time jobs, not finding any way to get ahead, getting super frustrated that I couldn't get ahead. And then um, of all things, my, my high school job had been at a Little Caesars Pizza and they hired this delivery driver to deliver pizzas, and he could juggle five. And I had not met anyone since elementary school who could who could do five. So um, I was so inspired. I started practicing every night. It took me a couple of weeks to get to where uh, I could do five a little bit. And yeah, that that was the beginning.
0: I think it's good too sometimes because like when you're in a vacuum juggling, sometimes you do think you're the best, or you kind of think, okay, right. I've discovered everything I need to know about this activity, juggling. And maybe it's till you meet another juggler or you go to your first convention or festival and you go, oh, (laughs) I've barely scratched the surface.
1: Right, right. Well, have you heard Ivan Passell's story? I love this story.
0: No, no, please share it.
1: So uh, (laughs) he had bought Professor Confidences, the complete juggler book, and he had gone through and learned essentially everything in that book. And having exhausted the book, he thought, man, I'm. I'm probably one of the best jugglers in the world. And then he went (laughs) to his first convention and it was that exact moment you described, like, oh, oh my gosh. He he said he walked into the gym and Garfield was over there doing eight or something like that. And he's just like, oh, there's a lot more to this.
0: (laughs) Now, were you interested in show business in general when you were a kid? Did you you go see a lot of movies or were you in any kind of high school plays? Because a lot of people get in it through drama and then they sort of discover juggling. And other people discover juggling and then realize they have to kind of make it into some kind of show. So
1: definitely more the second. But uh, some of what you said there, I, I was doing drama in high school and I actually wanted to be being very introverted. I never wanted to be on stage. I wanted to be a backstage person running sound light setting sets up. And I really enjoyed that creation side of it and the building side of it. I grew up in my, oh, I guess this is important. My dad had his own company growing up it was a sign shop so I'd get off uh, from elementary school or middle school and I'd be hanging around the sign shop all evening and uh, watching him work and learning how to build things and so working backstage in theater kind of felt similar to uh, to that in a, in a small way so I kind of envisioned that's what I was going to do but uh, yeah just like you said I, I fell in love with the idea of doing the struggling thing. And this guy who I'd worked with at Little Caesars, he was doing some gigs and I was trying to get him to like, teach me or who's your agent. And uh, <laughs> Right, he, he gave me a few tips, but it was like, Hey, you bother me kid kind of thing.
0: <laughs> well, I think on that scale, any job you get might be a job he could have gotten. True. True.
1: Absolutely. There, there could have been, and he was definitely better than me, but um, I, I was wanting to like team up and like practice together. And he, he was already more advanced than me, so he didn't really, I didn't really have a lot to offer him. And then I heard about this juggler out on the beach who was doing shows, and I went out there multiple times and tried to find him. I heard he was living out of a Volkswagen bus, <laughs> surfing in the morning, doing shows at night, and that was what he did. And I thought, okay, well, I can at least find out more about how he does it and what is, how to become a performer. So I searched for him for months and wasn't able to ever find him. And then uh, when I had essentially given up, I found him one night and I started talking to him and I'll never forget. I walked up to him before his show and told him I could juggle a little bit. And he said, have you ever juggled fire? I said, no. He said, can you juggle clubs? I said, yes. He said, can you pass clubs? I said, yes. And he said, well, you can juggle fire. (laughs) And he turned to the audience (laughs) and said, Hey everyone, this guy's a juggler. We're going to pass torches. And he went and, he went nice. and grabbed torches and I, I did my first ever fire juggle, passing torches on the beach in
0: Carlsbad, California with this guy in front of an audience. <laughs> I hope you at least remember to shake them off. Did you shake them off first at least?
1: So I think he prepped everything. Good. Yeah, I, I have no idea how to juggle fire. So uh, that'd be a terrible experience
0: joke. if he didn't shake them off. He just hands you these torches and the burning hot liquid is flying at you and you're, you're trying to handle the flames for the first time.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was a good experience. I mean, trial by fire, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, after the show, I, I talked to him and I was like, hey, we should practice or maybe we can work on something together. And he literally turned his hat and he showed me and he said, you know, there, there's not enough money in here for me, let alone for two of us. And he very nicely told me that my level was not high enough. For him to really want to team up with me or work with me, and he said it very nicely, but it's like, yeah, it's fine.
0: He wasn't going to share right. space in the van with you and take you out surfing in right, the mornings, right? Yeah,
1: I've got my own surfboard, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're a good surfer because one of the stories in your in your book is about uh, riding a twenty foot, twenty one foot wave. Yes. So you are a surfer.
1: So funny enough that the day of the twenty one foot wave riding. I only got destroyed by waves. I did not actually ride a single (laughs) wave that day. Uh, But the day before, the 19-foot day, I had actually gotten a beautiful ride. It's amazing when you drop in on a wave that big because normally you drop in and you immediately hear the wave behind you crashing because it comes over the top and you hear it crashing. But when it's that big, you're already riding and it's totally quiet other than the sound of your board skimming through the water because the wave is still getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It hasn't even broke yet. It, It creates this really surreal feeling and then you just go... I didn't know you could go this fast on a surfboard because you're just going at an unbelievable speed uh, on waves that size. It was exhilarating, to say the least.
0: (laughs) I've never surfed, but I've often used surfing as a metaphor for like the show experience like you're sort of riding yeah. a wave, like if you're doing a street show, like the conditions are important. Like if you're surfing, sometimes the waves are pumping and it's a beautiful day. And Same thing like when you're doing street shows, sometimes the beautiful day, the weather's there, the people are there, you know, the crowd is kind of like the waves. And then other days, it's kind of flat, there are no waves, but you still try to make it happen. So do you sort of feel the same connection between sort of surfing and, and doing shows?
1: I think that is a really good comparison. I'd always kind of describe surfing as like a dance and every wave is different. Just like when you dance with different people, no two people dance exactly the same. Uh, you hop on a wave and it's kind of like, Hey, here's me. Here's you. Well, what are we, what are we going to create here? And sometimes it creates something beautiful and sometimes you're stepping on each other's toes. And yeah, that's a great metaphor for a performance. I remember one time Jonathan, and I did a show on a cruise ship and the first show was just an absolute home run standing ovation audience just loved it. And of course we're feeling on, on top of the world. Then the audience clears and 45 minutes, the next audience is there and we come out to do the second show. And you know how those second shows can kind of be half empty and uh, a little less energy than maybe the earlier show was. And we came out like, we just got a standing ovation, but then we realized, wait a second. These aren't the same people. These aren't the people who were just loving us 45 minutes ago. This is a brand new crowd, and we got to start from scratch and and rebuild and find the the pulse of this crowd with this level of density in the audience.
0: And and yeah, we 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 found the pulse. And no two shows are ever the same. That's a good lesson. Just the way no two waves are ever the same. No two shows are ever the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's the night I realized, and this has been a really valuable resource for me as a performer. If you come out at 110% and the audience only gives you 75%, your your only options are to continue on at 110% and just hope they'll join you there or slowly draw yourself down to the 75 to like match them. But then you kind of look deflated. You look like you're defeated. You came out so big and then, oh, you kind of had to come down. So what I learned that night is now when I walk on stage, I try to come out at 50 or 60% intensity. And if the response of the audience just keeps building, well, I can intensify my energy and meet them. But if they're kind of keeping it mellow, or they're a little more shy, if I come out of that 50,
0: 60%, I haven't completely blown myself out with nowhere to go. Well, and like you're saying, if you come out at 110%, you have nowhere to go. Like, you can't get more yeah. excited about something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this next trick's even better. Like, really? You're already giving us so much. It's, you have to kind of respond and, and leave yourself somewhere to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important for the audience to know that they are affecting you and touching you and impacting you.
0: Well, these are like good lessons that you, you seem to have in every area of your life where the things that happen to you and the, the way you approach your career – is very much an allegory. Like I like what this one, uh, I don't know if it's a review or a quote that you came up with, where they call your book a combination of chicken soup for the soul meets the endless summer. Because I yeah. like that the stories do have lessons attached to them. You know, for, for me, I
1: feel like that is, well, so there's that old analogy of nobody wants to hear about your wound, but they want to hear about your scars. Hmm. Because we all have wounds, But when we're wounded, well, tend to the wound. But when you have scars, it's like you've healed from that. You have survived it. You've gotten through it. And I think there's a beauty and a value to the lessons that come from that. And there are hundreds of stories that I've considered. I mean, like in my Rolodex of stories, there's over 550 things sitting there waiting to be written. In fact, way more if I were to catalog the ones that are in my other notebook and 67 of them were used in this first book but uh, these are just the ones where there's some sort of a mutual or a universal takeaway where somebody can read the story and identify with it or connect with something in their own lives and that was the goal at least so you never know when you're a creator or creative you never know how your stuff is going to hit until you just put it out there that's that's the, the the trust or the faith of the creative process but uh I've gotten some really great feedback that makes me think that 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 goal is being achieved in some ways. For example, one woman who had the book let a friend of hers read it, and after she'd randomly cracked open one of the stories and read through it, she pulled out her own, you know, those uh, black and white composition books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the notebooks. Yeah, yeah. So she pulled out one of those and she started copying one of the pages by hand, uh, verbatim, and uh, the woman who owned the uh, actually owned the book said, well, what are you doing? And she said, this story talks about the exact situation I've been wrestling with with my own family, and I've never known how to deal with it. And this story just gave me a tool for for dealing with it. So I want to write this down, and I'm going to tear it out when I get home and put it up on my fridge as a daily reminder, so I never again forget this tool for handling this situation with my family.
0: Well, I think this book gives you so many tools, especially as an entertainer, because a lot of the stories are about The fact that stuff happens to you in life, uncontrollable issues, uncontrollable people come into your life. and it's how you deal with it and how you respond that allows you to take control of the situations. And I think that's such a valuable lesson that we're not victims. And I think a lot of the stories, they do deal with bullying because it seems like uh, your brothers, as as opposed to being sort of supportive older brothers, they did cause a lot of early trauma in your life, it seems like.
1: Yeah, they... uh... Um, one person who'd read the book said, are you close with your brothers? And I said, not, not really. And they said, yeah, I can, I can see why. <laughs> and, yeah. It's easy to see why they um, seem
0: pretty horrible. <laughs>
1: well, and I deliberately left the names out of the majority of the stories regarding brothers. Cause I have three brothers and I didn't want to out anyone directly. Mm-hmm. So I really was trying to be as gentle and merciful as I could be. Cause they can hide behind the anonymity of saying, Oh, that was one of the other brothers. Right, But at the same time, I wanted to get some of those messages out there of, of like the ripples, the, what seems like just harmless teasing to, to your sibling or something can have ripples that go out and, and create situations for them elsewhere. But you know, at the same time, I, I think when you go through certain things, it gives you a compassion or
0: an understanding for, for things that you might not have if you hadn't dealt with that. What also allows you to share that understanding? I think one of my favorite stories was uh, the subtle probings of the bully, where the bully has a tactic of asking you very nicely to do something just to get your compliance just sort of test the boundaries. And I thought that's a very interesting concept.
1: Yeah. So um, I've seen so many different examples of that. And in the story I talk, I I don't really identify, if I remember correctly, I don't really identify as specific in that. That's sort of a story where there's a, a little bit of a broad generalization but yeah, um, there are so many forms of bullying and you kind of have to become adept to all of them because I was raised just to be really nice to other people and and uh, turn the other cheek and the, the, these principles of pacifism. And, and But the thing is, with a playground bully specifically, they, they just see that as weakness and an invitation to keep uh, tormenting you more. Uh, another thought that comes to mind, there, there's that... I don't remember what her name is, and I apologize, but she does these live art exhibitions where, for example, she'll stand there and the passerbys can do anything they want to her. They can slap her. They can pinch her. There's a table with tools on it. I think in one of her exhibits, there was actually a gun on there, and people were pointing the gun at her, and she was doing a, a social experiment to show what people would do to someone when there was absolutely no repercussions and no, and I'm not saying that all people would do that, but it it was a very interesting experiment. And I I think uh, people will sometimes push to see if they can, and if you don't give any resistance, they'll just keep pushing until they find your edge. That is their objective to just say, oh, well, how much can I get away with,
0: with this person? And most people aren't that way, but every now and then you meet someone who is. And if we go back to show business, that's like the agent sometimes like, what can I get away with? What can I ask this guy to do? How much can I push before they'll say no? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. You know, people have such a mixed relationship with agents and and I get it. I've,
1: I've had many, many debates with uh, entertainers over the years and some people love agents. Some people just really don't like agents. Um, I've always really liked working with agents and I think part of it is uh, we work with you, you know, Bill Fry from back in the day, of course.
0: Yeah, he was with uh, Gravity's Last Stand, a very funny three person or maybe even more uh, early juggling act. Yeah, exactly. So
1: he and uh, Carol Studer, they started everything but the mime and uh, have run this great agency. And I've been working with that agency since 2003 or four. In fact, when we won IJA, I met Bill Fry the next day in the gym and he told me i'm the most successful juggler you've never heard of and i thought that was that was cute and funny we got chatting and he said i really like what you guys did and i'm thinking about retiring i'm looking for someone to replace me with you guys would be interested and i said well i've got a promo package in the car he's like right here right now I said, yeah you want it and he said sure so uh, a note on preparation so we walked out of the car and i handed him our promo pack and he opened it up and looked through it and said this is very interesting we'll watch your video and And we'll let you know. But um, long story short, I've been working with the agency ever since. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Fry has uh, passed at this point. But uh, his his girlfriend, Carol, is still going strong and running a great agency. And and I attribute them in large part for a lot of the success of Rootberry. They were just, it was such an amazing relationship working with them. So I'm probably biased towards agencies because we've had such amazing interactions with them. And and I get it. Some people say, well, if you book me for 1500 and then you book the gig with the client for 9,000 and put all that money in your pocket, that's not fair. But my attitude has always been if you call me for the gig and ask me what I'll do it for. And I say, this is what I want. And you get me that. And then I find out you made more money on it. Well, Hey, it was your contact. It was your reputation. You organized the whole thing. You negotiated. And you made money off of the gig. So, I mean, if I wanted a different amount than what I got, then I should have asked for a different amount. If, if this is what I'm willing to do it for, then I'm willing to do it for that. There's two sides to the coin. That's just always been my philosophy,
0: and it, it works really well with, with working with agents. Well, and some agents are very specific in the venues that they book. Like if you're a college agent, and you, that's all you need to do to book colleges if you're a performer, and they have a very specific lane that they stay in. And it's very effective to have them as agents. And then the same with the cruise ship agent, since the industry prefers, since they use so many different acts to go through agencies. So sometimes it's really effective. And the good thing about, uh, it was a good thing and a bad thing about the, the uh, everything but the mine. like at a certain point, I think maybe we had contacted them and they said, well, we already have a juggling act, where if you're a comedian yeah. or a singer, they're never going to say, oh, we already have a comedian. But in some cases, having one juggling act for an agency is enough. Well, and everything but the mime, uh,
1: Carol and Bill's agency, they had a reasonably strict policy of not representing more than one of anything. They wanted to make sure that if they were representing you, they would be able to get you work. And there's exceptions. If they're booking uh, balloon twisters for colleges, they had a second, third, and fourth string or stilt walkers. But for specialist acts, they would have one magician one juggling act, one this, one that, and it worked really well with them because they built these strong relationships. And they were, I think, more interested in building excellent relationships with their clients and their uh, performers than maybe just be able to represent a whole bunch of different people, but then they hardly work with any of them because how often do you get a call for that person if you have 10 jugglers on your roster?
0: It's kind of a warning sign uh, if someone has like 20, 30, 40 juggling acts. Because you see like, oh, it's probably pretty easy to get on their roster, but it's hard to stand out. And you see that they don't care if you get the job as long as somebody gets the job. Exactly, yeah. And that's not a great negotiating position to be in.
1: Yeah, and and I always kind of secretly thought to myself because we ended up on one of those lists where all of a sudden it's like, oh my, they represent this juggler, this juggler. And oh no, they represent, like you said, 15, 20 jugglers. And my thought was, they probably genuinely work with one of those and they're taking advantage of your name being on there to draw some level of your, of your Google traffic to their website. And then when somebody, if somebody actually specifically asks about you or uh, some other act, they can say, oh, you know, they're not available, but we have this <laughs> other act that's very good and they can just drive traffic to the act that they really want to work with. And I, I don't know that that's what was happening, but it
0: makes you kind of wonder a little. That's part of it sometimes. I mean it doesn't hurt to have uh, names on your your list, whether you can get them or not because if it draws people to right. your site, like you say, then you can kind of say, well they're not available or uh, this other act is also perhaps more appropriate and someone we can get so it's it's a bit of a buyer beware because like you say if you quote a price and the agent delivers that price to you, if they're getting a lot more. Well, they've delivered what you asked for. So it is a kind of complex relationship between acts and, and the, the people who get them the act.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, th- and then I want to hit on one other thing that you said earlier. You're right. When you get a cruise ship agent, they, they will be booking you for the cruises. But one of the interesting things about the college market, and I don't know if it's as true now as it was at, at 10 years ago, when Jonathan and I started doing the college market, not only did it help us start establishing more of our hour-long show, because prior to that, we'd, we'd worked at Legoland, we did that for three years, and six shows a day, five days a week for three years, so that's 3,000 something shows. And then we got the gig at uh, Circus Circus uh, with Mark McGuire, and that was three to six shows a day, five to six days a week, and we did that for a year and a half or two years, so I don't even know how many more thousands of shows that was but but a lot of them and then um but we were still only doing at most maybe 25 or 30 minutes and at that point we were six seven years into our career so it wasn't until we started doing the colleges that we really started getting those hour-long shows so that was a huge development uh, aspect of our career and then the other unexpected thing of doing the college market Granted, it, it's pay to play. You got to pay and you got to showcase. And you got to keep going after it for a couple of years to to be really successful at it. But we picked up our military contracts doing the college market because the people who are booking those were showing up to the college booking conferences to look for entertainers. So that's how we got some of those really uh, unusual military booking gigs. And then we also picked up a couple of cruises. We did our... Foot in the door with Norwegian cruise lines was from doing the college market, so there was some cross pollination by doing the college market that was really valuable to our development and growth in our
0: career. Now we've had Team Rootberry on before, uh, way back when on on the podcast, but let's do a little recap about how you met your partner Jonathan and how you how you started the act. Uh, Like you said, you did amusement parks and you went on to cruises and military tours, but how did the two of you meet? Because last we heard in the story there was some uh, guy at the van who was basically saying you weren't good enough. So let's pick it up from there.
1: (laughs) So, yeah. So not long after that, I started just cold calling different entertainment bookers around the area and trying to find out what they would charge to, to have a juggler come out and do a party or something. Cause I I had no idea and I had no idea where to start and you couldn't just hop on the internet at that point and look this stuff up. So, um, the third agent I called Barnaby entertainment. Uh, the guy's name was Benny and we started chatting and he was like, Oh, so you're a juggler. I said, yeah. And he said, let me put you in touch with my juggler. So then he gave me Jonathan's number and I called Jonathan. He told me he was right in the middle of moving, but if I could call him in three weeks or something, then he, he'd have a little more time to chat. So I put it on my calendar. And I called exactly three weeks later and this sweet little lady answered. I found out it was his mom. And she said, Oh no, he's moved out, but let me give you his number. So she gives me his phone number and I call him and to hear him describe it later. He had just moved in. He was, it was the first time he was moved out of home. He was living on his own. He was renting a room from a a family and he had just gotten everything set up and unpacked. He just set up his phone because we didn't even have cell phones yet. We were still landlining everything. And he had lay back on his bed like, now <laughs> this is my new life. I'm on my own. What am I going to do? And the phone rang. And he thought, huh, the only person who had the number was his mom because he had just got the number and he gave it to her. And then she gave it to me. He, he answered the phone and I said, hey, it's me again and would love to get together and juggle. And he kind of figured, well, maybe this is the universe saying yep. I, I should meet up with this guy. So we met up a week later in the park and he had a Diablo and I had a Diablo and we started passing and I I think both of us expected the other one to be uh, 30 years older than they were and wearing a tie-dye t-shirt and when we actually both showed up and were kind of like hey you're we're kind of the same we're around the same age and both liked a lot of the same uh, extreme sports and he was doing a lot of cliff jumping at the time and I, of course, have always loved mountain biking and flatland freestyle and that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, we, we started hanging out and juggling. And I don't know who was better technically, but I think the important part was we, we were at a level where we could both grow together. We each had things that we could teach the other one, and we were both better at certain things than the other one. And he was already doing entertainment for kids' parties and clowning and balloon twisting and that kind of thing. And uh, everything I'm telling you right now is a big part of what book two is going to be about just in more depth. But uh, yeah, so he and I started hanging out and then we just kind of started becoming friends. And then one of the key moments is he used to have this little blue Toyota mini truck. And one day we were sitting in the back of his little blue Toyota mini truck. And he asked me, he's like, what do you, what do you really want to do with this? Where where are we going with this? And I'd been thinking about the same thing. And we, we had a bunch of ij videos somebody had given us one of those big a big cardboard box filled with those uh vhs tapes that are all in the long form recording where you put it <laughs> yeah. in it's all grainy and sure, it's sure. six or eight hours <laughs> exactly <laughs> you have good
0: jugglers but then you have like a four hours of circus jugglers in the shot from the fifth the 15th row or something and exactly very very uh very developmental for a lot of us who look back on those days with fondness
1: Oh, yeah. And then if you had that collection, you'd, you'd trade uh, with other people and uh, have recording parties. and Yeah, it was it was, uh, yeah, it, was it, it was very valuable. Yeah, I, I used to watch those videos compulsively, but uh, we had learned about the IJ at that point, And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, let's try to compete in the world championships. And he kind of like rolled his eyes and laughed like, yeah, like that's ever going to happen. Like we're ever going to be that good. And then uh, I said to him, well, what do you want to do with it? And he said, I'd like to visit 30 countries before my 30th birthday and 40 countries before my 40th birthday. And I, now it was my turn. Now I rolled my eyes like, Oh geez. So like we're ever going to visit 30 or 40 countries. Like, yeah, like that's going to happen. We said, well, why, why don't we try to do all that? And it's like, sure. Why not? We've, we've just set uh, we've both set unattainable goals or that's what it at least felt like. Now let's go for it. We, we at the, not long after that, He was friends with a youth pastor who gave us keys to the youth uh, church area, and we started training Monday through Friday. We'd show up in the morning. We'd do minimum of like 30 hours of training Monday through Friday. Yeah, we we would frequently be there seven or eight hours, especially in the early part of the week before we'd be burning out and the old uh, juggling till your fingers bleed or you know they always say musicians play your guitar till your fingers bleed. So we would literally juggle till our fingers were bleeding and tape up and keep going. And I went from being a shaky five ball juggler to a very shaky eight ball juggler in about a year. I was having probably not qualifying runs of eight ball, but I was, I was actually seeing the pattern start to develop after just a year's worth of practice. That's how much we were practicing. Yeah. At the end of that, we went to the Edinburgh French festival. We'd been saving and saving and saving. And, And we went over there and, totally
0: got our butts kicked. We were not ready for it. Well, that's ambitious at your at your, at your level of not really having done that much together. That's a pretty, you know, there's a lot of, lot of acts out there to compete with.
1: Oh, yeah. And well, we needed it. It showed us like how much more we had to grow and how much uh, we still had to learn. And the, the only reason we got through it was Jonathan had the foresight to fill an extra suitcase with uh, 260 Qualitex balloons. And we were twisting balloons in the park because we were not making any money on our on our street yeah. show in fact the first street show we did afterwards we passed the hat and people dropped in a few pence and then this homeless guy who had been watching the show walked over and he dropped in a 1 pound coin and he said you need this more than me <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I can really picture that moment with you and you and Jonathan in the car because, you know, where you sort of make a commitment to to this life and to being jugglers and what do you want to do? Because at a certain point, I think it's important to say to ourselves, those of us who want to be jugglers, you know, professional jugglers, since it's a kind of a outside-the-box kind of thing to admit, to say, yeah, I want to be a professional juggler. I've made that commitment, whether the, the parental uh, units uh, – we're encouraging, or your friends are encouraging. At a certain point, we have to make that commitment if we want to pursue it, because of the practice it takes and the amount of dues you have to pay. To say, yeah, I want to be a professional juggler, and if you can find somebody who wants to do it with you, that's great. Yeah,
1: well, absolutely, and having someone to do it with was so much better than doing it just by yourself. In my opinion, that's that's what made it work for us. But you're right; it, it, you have to. You have to commit to it with such an incredible level of dedication and desire to make it happen. And yeah, that, that's that's what we did. And
0: there was a lot of stuff we didn't know. And then, then how'd you guys get to Legoland? Because that was a, a big, I'm sorry to cut you off, but uh, how'd you guys get to Legoland? Because that was another big step for you guys.
1: Yeah, great, great question. When we came back from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, we actually didn't have, we had been sharing a, a small apartment when we left. And we let that go because we couldn't afford to go to the Edinburgh Friend Festival and keep an apartment. So when we came back, we were both essentially, we landed back in San Diego with nowhere to really go, either of us, and kind of bummed around on friends' couches for, for a few weeks until we both found rooms to rent. Yeah, the struggle was back on. I was twisting balloons, table to table at restaurants, doing kids' parties, dressing up as characters and, or as a clown <laughs> and doing parachute games. And that's what he was doing too. And yeah, the first year I was a professional juggler, I'm doing air quotes again, I only did two gigs where I actually juggled. The rest of them were kids parties and, but it was closer than working retail or working at the pizza place. Like sometimes you just got to move yourself a little closer to what it is you want to be doing. Uh, even if it isn't the thing you want to be doing, you, you just keep taking steps that move you closer to it. And I was getting over a little bit of my shyness and yeah, having definitely some hard knocks. In fact, you mentioned uh, earlier, I think before we started recording how uh, you'd read uh, the end of the book and there's a teaser for book two and how there's a, a, <laughs> yeah
0: about your first yeah. gig, <laughs>
1: yeah it talks about my very first gig and and the travesty that uh, that occurred there. But I, I I think that story is hilariously funny and it was so traumatic. I thought I would probably never perform again, but uh, here I am still, still going at it, <laughs> glutton for
0: punishment. <laughs> well, I think it sort of shows people who want to do this uh, the importance of perseverance. But at a certain point, I hate to admit it, but you, but you have to pay your dues. Oh yeah.
1: Well, and then back to Legoland. So that that was truly the beginning because we came back. And even though we'd gotten our butts handed to us at the Edinburgh French Festival, we threw it right on the resume. And when we went to do the Legoland uh, auditions, we had no chance. There was no way they were going to choose us. That juggler who had been performing on the beach that was was like, eh, you know, keep keep going, kid. <laughs> Yeah. he was there auditioning sean mckinney oh. was there auditioning you remember sean of course
0: of course of course
1: and uh jeff king so jeff king was juggling a chainsaw and sean was just you know he just went in there and just tore it apart with juggling like we as if we were gonna compete with any of the stuff they were doing so we we just went in and did what we were doing and all the routines we were doing were kind of half-baked we were um uh, we did a Diablo routine and some passing and I don't even remember what else, but we, we did not have high expectations. And then audition was over and women we did kids parties for the weekends. And then uh, sure enough, they called us back and they ended up hiring Roger, the juggler, Scotty Cavanaugh, this guy named Chad, who was a balloon twister. And then us, and we became the, the roving entertainment at Legoland for the next three years. And that was truly the beginning where Jonathan and I set the foundation
0: and just got enough practice and interaction with the audience to, to really start. Well, that's what you got to do, man. They always say those first thousand shows are, are the hardest to get, but uh, you got to get those under your belt before you can move on. Yeah. I always thought it would be a great
1: little documentary project.
0: Just take someone who's never done stand-up comedy
1: and have them, you film them, do 100 open mics, and they do like a boot camp or whatever, but you film them and make a documentary through the process of them performing a hundred times and working on their set and seeing the, the evolution of them through that hundred shows. Cause like you said, that first, the first thousand, I mean, it sounds so daunting to people when they're starting. Well, you, you got to get through your first thousand shows. Um, I feel the same way about a new routine. I mean, you got to perform a routine 30, 40 times before it really starts to find its
0: legs. And what point were you at your career uh, during the IJA championships? Cause you had that one big year. And That was after Legoland. Was that before the cruises uh, when you uh, had that big sweep at the IGA?
1: So we had done Legoland and I think we competed our first time uh, in teams while we were still, maybe it was after Legoland. Yeah, I think actually we left Legoland and we had about a year where we were not doing a whole lot other than training uh, while we were still trying to figure out how to do this for a living and get booked when we didn't have a, a full time at a theme park. And, uh, we competed the first time and we lost, or we got the silver medal to the LaSalle brothers.
0: And I mean, you know, they were, they were unbelievable. That's tough so, to beat. Yeah. The acrobatics and the choreography.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they, they slayed it. They were, they were so awesome. So, uh, it was, it was our honor to take a silver to them. <laughs> and then we competed again. And, um, oh, Chris, what's, what's his last name? Chris, uh, Who,
0: Chippini? Who,
1: Chris? No, no. um, I'm trying to remember. It was a team that had formed just for that year, I believe. Anyway, so they they beat us the the second time, and we got another silver. And then we came back. uh, We we got the gig at uh, Circus Circus, where we were running our championship act over and over and over, week after week after week. And that's when we were able to come in and do the, uh, the championships and then had that really good year where we won teams, which that was, that's what we really wanted. We were there to win, uh, to try to win teams. And that's what we'd worked so hard at. And that act was so well-prepared and kind of fun. Uh, If you remember, we'd kind of, it was essentially the normal act we did, but we'd put a spin on it and made it kind of fun and different for the IJA stage. And then. Didn't you bring
0: some other performers on as well? Wasn't the kind of interactive and was it. Oh yeah. I forget exactly the theme, but it seemed like there was. A lot going on on stage.
1: Yeah, we had Ben Schoenberg as a referee. And, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Robert Nelson and Reese Thomas were uh, yeah. were uh, judges. We brought our own, quote, judges and had them on stage. And then uh, Bryson and Ivan Passell were the announcers. And it was kind of a sports theme. And there was cheerleaders and a, a fan. Matt Hall was playing the part of a, mm, yeah, of a fan I, who wanted an memorable. autograph. And he, yeah, I
0: was there, Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah it was it was a little uh crazy and chaotic but it was fun and that's that's what we wanted to do we wanted to do something different and fun i had felt that my individual's routine was still sort of a framework routine that i was hoping to solidify and and improve on in the in the coming years but uh we just happened to have a really good night and i mean the 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 galakos were there so we didn't have the highest expectations for our own uh we were just gonna go out and have fun and do the best we could because, uh, Volva and Olga, you know, they're, they're so unbelievably good. So, um, uh, yeah, I, it was, it, it was wonderful to have the year we did. And I competed in the three ball competition as well, which was the Dan
0: Holzman three ball
1: competition. No less. <laughs>
0: it's not, not actually called that. It's called the individual prop competition, but I did, uh, started in 2015. I think it was 2000. Did
1: you not know that ever, in my recollection, everyone called it the Dan Holzman uh you you may not have called it that but everyone else called it that
0: (laughs) and i still think it's the fairest way to compete just one prop versus someone else doing that same prop but i guess i'm in the minority there so i'll I'll keep i'll keep banging on that uh drum but we'll see where the competitions go in the future but that was a big year because people's choice individual props individuals and teams Probably the best year any. And I think, Jonathan, it was the first time anyone had bounced nine balls to qualification
1: in, in a competition, and he did that too.
0: Okay, big year. And that's, did that lead into the cruises? Because I think that's another thing we haven't really talked about is how you got onto the cruise ships. And then let's share maybe uh, one or two cruise adventure stories. Okay.
1: Yeah, So uh, so like I said, the day after the championships – uh, I was walking into the gym, and that's when I met Bill Fry, which led to everything but the mime and doing the college market, which ultimately led to the ships and the and the military tours. But uh, yeah, we we ended up working over the years seven different cruise lines. I can't even tell you how many ships. One one year we we're on the road 283 days, and one year, ironically, you know Jonathan's goal of hitting 30 countries yeah. before his 30th birthday. Our record was 32 countries and 24
0: states in one year. (laughs) So I just had uh, uh, Jeff Taveja, another cruise ship mm -hmm. performer. And the cruise ships are one of the venues that's still really going strong. Out of all the things that have come and gone, cruises are still a good place for jugglers. Yes. They've found ways to
1: reduce their need for guest entertainers with some of the other things they've been filling in. But there, there will always be, or maybe not always, but, but at least at present, there are uh, still very viable career slots there. But I, I have found the ships to be quite competitive. When, once you get in there and establish and you've got a good reputation, they, they can turn into long, like, like we did Princess Cruise Lines for the better part of five and a half, six years straight. We were doing almost consistently two weeks on, two weeks off for five or six years. And what were some of your favorite places to go? Oh, well, I did nine seasons in Alaska, and I've always loved Alaska. There's, I love the backpacking and the scene. And, you know, I, I eventually got to go to New Zealand on a cruise. And I was amazed at how similar, to me at least, New Zealand and Alaska felt. There, there's a lot of similarities in uh, just the feel, and the look, and the pristine aspect of the places. So,
0: yeah, if you're talking Alaska's about… Alaska's nice because you, need- you can get off the ship every day and… You can always see land it's it's sort of a you don't feel like sometimes those sea days like what's the longest you've ever spent uh, on the ocean as far as like a a crossing
1: well we had a number of hawaii runs where we'd have that five-day cross yeah and then another time we were coming up from mexico and we were supposed to have a turnaround in uh i want to say it was up in new york and we were just trucking straight up the east coast to go to new york but and that's where we were going to get off but then there was a big storm. So halfway up the East Coast, they rerouted us south and around the storm straight over to Europe because that's they were doing a repositioning right after they picked up everyone in New York. And we ended up just riding the entire way. So I want to, that one was long. I want to say that was, <laughs> that was uh, because we already had
0: several days at sea just going up there.
1: I want to say that was like
0: seven days at sea. So
1: I think that was probably the longest.
0: And what are the pros and cons you think of cruises? I mean, you get to travel, But were there some times you thought, oh, this isn't worth it? When I first
1: started getting on ships, I would meet entertainers and they just wouldn't get off the ship. And I thought that was the strangest thing, that that they wouldn't get off the ship. And then I did ships for years and years and years. And then it turned into there was one or two ports where I wasn't getting off the ship because it's like, well, I I know this port isn't one of my favorites, so so I wouldn't get off the ship. And then uh, nearer to the end, I actually started to find myself Choosing to stay on board and read a book or uh, watch a documentary, or right, like one of the, uh, I ended up watching the the 100 most watched TED Talks, which was a wonderful watch, and I feel like I learned more from that than my entire four years in high school. <laughs> but yeah, I think one of the most important things I'm realizing now in this new evolution is that. When you're in it and things are just getting better and you're you're making good money as an entertainer, like who, who would have thunk you could ever actually make a legit living as an entertainer and things just seem like they're getting better and better and better. At least keep it in your back pocket, some idea of what you might want to do if you weren't doing this anymore. Like for me, for 20 years now, I've been writing and recording stories and taking note of things and just thinking one day I'm, I'm going to do this writing thing. One day it's, it's going to be the right time. And then, um, you know, I had the, actually, I guess I haven't talked about it on here and I haven't really talked a lot about it at all, but, uh, I was in a car accident and ended up having to have surgery and disc repair on my back and neck. I think they did four or five discs in my neck and one on my back. And it, uh, it laid me pretty low for a while. And, that that was what happened with rootberry is Jonathan understandably was kind of like, Hey, uh, we haven't done any gigs for a little while now. Are you going to be able to come back from this? And I would say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come back from this. And he understandably had to find work and I was scrambling to find other work. And by the time uh, I, I feel like really just this year, I've really started to finally, uh, I, I don't think I'll ever be in the physical capacity that I was before, but, but, I'm getting back to some semblance of my norm and uh, Jonathan's of course uh, got some other career options they're going and I've been working on some other things and getting the writing going, but uh, that transition, and, and I'm actually still doing entertainment as well and starting to ramp that up again now that it's, it's, uh, I'm I'm healed and the entertainment is coming back post COVID. Even after COVID was over, it still was a little bit slow at first, I thought, but maybe everyone else had different experiences. But yeah, so that that's kind of what happened. We're not kinda of that that's what happened with Rootberry. It just kind of fizzled because I got injured. And then uh yeah, working with Jonathan was fantastic. Best partner uh imaginable for the time and chapter that we had together. We were best friends, still are best friends. And I had I ha-
0: Marry a negative thing to say about the man. He's he's uh... he's a good guy, and I appreciate what he's done because, you know, there's a certain time your career will be over, or you do have to transition, and he made a very practical transition into real estate and being a an inspector of homes and and being in the real estate industry. You know, you admire people who are able to to move on, and have other chapters in their lives, and it's important to yeah. to yeah. talk to people like yourself who have gone through these different stages. And the one thing I never did, which I want to talk a little bit about, were these military tours. Uh, which which branch did you do, and where were some of the places you went? So uh, one of them was
1: USO, and the other 10 were MWR, so Navy. And um, yeah, we, we had some amazing experiences and adventures. And yeah, it was, let's see, Bosnia, Kosovo, Bahrain, Lebanon, all over the bases in Europe and England cuba three times although one of those times was for the boys and girls club not for the military tour and then we've been to guam a couple times south korea japan i'm probably missing some oh yeah and then there's been some bases up on the east coast that we've done uh stateside but yeah that w- it gave us the opportunity to go some places and have some experiences that uh that we normally would not have gotten to uh get into at all and and uh, like I said, in book two, I'm going to go into all, some of those crazy things in depth and uh, the customs agent in Aruba who tried to extort us. And I put my feet up on his desk <laughs> in, in I was refusing to, to comply with his. He was trying to charge us something like a thousand dollars. I have it written down in my notes. So it's something like a thousand dollars a blade for all of our juggling knives. Oh, funny. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just him, no, uh, no. And, and he was getting more aggressive and I just leaned back in the chair and I put my feet up on his desk and <laughs> something about that. I'm, I'm not recommending you do that incidentally sure. but uh, something about that tells people that you have like a confidence of, uh, I don't, I don't even know where I was coming from with that other than <laughs> I just, well, I saw him as a bully. I saw, you know how I've, you've read the book, you know, how I feel yeah. about bullies. And I felt like I was being bullied and I, I don't comply
0: well with bullies, <laughs> Well, standing up for yourself, like you're saying, you know, being kind, being a person that wants to get along with people. But at a certain point, you have to know when to step up, either to protect yourself or just to protect your own sense of who you are as a person and what you're willing to take from other people. And yeah, I think that's a really good lesson you put across in this book about how to claim your, your independence and claim your power without becoming a bully yourself. Yes. And that's so important because you can
1: definitely overstep it when you're writing that line, that that's the balance. And I think that moment is kind of there. There's one of the stories in there where uh, where we came upon a rape in progress in, in Jamaica and how that scenario unfolded. Yeah. Just you, you step into a situation like that and suddenly you're in the middle of it. And how, how do you handle that? Like once the immediate danger is past, Yeah. That story in particular, I talk about it in the introduction of the book that story in particular I took down didn't literally take it down but I think of it that way I took it down off the shelf and I worked on it at least six times and then put it back up on the shelf and thought I'm not a good enough writer to write that story yet because it it was a really hard story to write because there's so many emotional dynamics there was so many characters there was so many scene changes and, and so many pieces of it that felt really important to tell because Nobody wants to hear the whole story or they want to hear the important elements and pieces that that mattered to to that. So, yeah, trying to figure out how to make that into a short story where all the characters had a realism and an accuracy to the detail of what happened and yet accurately depict the emotion. It it, it was just a really tough story to write. And I I feel pretty strongly and and good about uh, how how it turned out. It It was a labor of love trying to bring that story to life.
0: Another story that kind of illustrates the responsibilities of a person and how a person should take part in the world is a story where you try to teach a younger person a lesson. And that story <laughs> is, uh, I think that was Black Cat. Am I right about that one? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, I thought you were going to uh, say, so I sprayed him, that one. Uh. <laughs> well, The thing about these book is, like, I think you have a review in uh, Publishers Weekly where they kind, of, they kind of focused on the more intense dramatic stories, because there are some heavier moments. But people who are interested in the book should know there's a lot of lighter, humorous moments as well, including a, a pretty good fart joke. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but this, some, all the stories do have some lesson.
1: Yes, yeah. Maybe one of the best fart jokes ever. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the Black Cat story, it, it starts out with me talking about, sadly, finding a uh, uh, an animal that had been hit by a car in front of my house it was late at night who who's going to take care of that well it's 2 a.m if it's going to be taken care of it needs to be taken care of now and i i was coming home from a gig but i put all my equipment away and then i went out and i I picked up the little kitty and he was intact other than uh you could tell that his his back had been broken um in the accident but uh other than that he was fully intact and i just very lovingly brought him to the backyard and it, it's what I feel is kind of a, as these things go, a beautiful and magical moment as I lay him to rest in the backyard and I actually buried him right next to one of my chickens that had been buried there a few months earlier. And fast forwarding a little bit, I was working in the front yard and this this is all part of that same story. It's not directly related, but it's kind of related. And I was working in my front yard and there's a little kid who lives down the street and he comes over to help out in the yard all the time and he's very excited and whatnot. But I had noticed that a squirrel had been hit by a car in front of the house. So the, the kid's name is Hector. And he said, what are we going to do next? So I said, Hector, can you go grab a shovel? And he's like, sure. So he runs off to grab the shovel and he comes back. He's like, what are we going to do? And I said, come with me. We're going to we're going to do some some grown up stuff. Uh, you up for some grown-up stuff? And he, he kind of got this little furrow in his brow and, uh, okay. So I walked him out to the street and I explained, all right, I need you to scoop up the squirrel. And He's like, what, 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 why? I said, we got to bury him. And he, again, got that little furrow in his brow as he thought about it, but sure enough, he came around and he scooped the squirrel up and well, now what are we going to do? I brought him back into the yard and we dug a hole and we buried the squirrel and then we're sitting next to it. And I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you feel? And he said, I feel sad. I said, that's okay. It's okay to feel sad. I feel sad sometimes. And then he asked me, he said, why'd we do that? And I said, well, let me ask you this. Who, whose job is it to take care of things like that? If there's a squirrel hitting the street, like whose job is it? And he's only eight years old, but he he looks up and he's thinking about it and he's trying to think whose job it is. And he goes, I don't know. And I said, well, in life, there are going to be things that are clearly someone else's responsibility. And there are going to be things that are clearly your responsibility. But there's also going to be a lot of things that are not clearly anyone's responsibility. They're not someone else's and they're not yours. So when you encounter those things that are not really anyone's responsibility, ask yourself if it's not something you can't just take care of yourself. And if it is, then take care of it. And I said, so in this case, it was something that needed to be done. And, and we took care of it. He thought about that and he nodded. And then he said, well, I'm still sad, though. And I said, of course, that's, that's totally okay. And then he said, hey, can I decorate the grave? I said, of course. And he jumped up and was excited to move on to the next thing. And that was putting some flowers on the, uh, on the grave. But as, as he ran off, I just thought to myself, wow. I remember so many things from when I was eight or nine years old. I wonder if he'll remember the small man, or if he'll one day teach his own child to uh, take care of something like that, or if he'll teach the neighbor kid to take care of something like that. And uh, I, I think that's a really deep message that we need to rekindle as a society that there's a lot of things that we really can take responsibility for, for ourselves and our community and not just wait for other people to to fix things.
0: Well, that's a very nice sentiment, and I'm glad to see you using your experiences in both your life, you know your growing up and then your second book uh, about your show business career, not only to entertain but also to impart some important messages and leave an impact. I like to see that you're doing uh, this deeper work now.
1: yeah, that's that that is the hope that it'll it'll touch lives and have you ever told a story and then afterwards, people are looking at you and you go oh i guess you had to be there you, you know that awkward moment <laughs> sure sure uh, too many so times I, I, too many times right <laughs> so whenever i have a story that was one of those i don't i don't tell those stories uh, i try to tell the stories that like this there's something more sure. something that anyone who reads it could could take something away so that that's what i'm trying to in fact that's and I'm not criticizing at all because Anton Chekhov is one of the great writers of our humanity, but uh, it's really tough for me that so many of his stories just end. There there is no redemption. There is no, and I feel like for, for me, it's the exact opposite. And and maybe it's because if um, somebody listening to this will probably know his story better than me, but I, I think Anton Chekhov wrote kind of on the side he had a normal job and he had other things that he was doing with life but I don't think he ever really got to realize his own dreams so maybe it kind of makes sense that a lot of his stories kind of end sadly or kind of in that disappointment and myself being someone who has been incredibly blessed and lucky and through no doubt a lot of hard work and and adaptation but but has gotten to live really the dream in a lot of ways, maybe that flavored my, my angle that there is hope. There is, there, there is a dream out there waiting for everyone. And if you're willing to work hard enough at it, long enough at it without giving up and keep adapting your strategy until you find the one that is a fit, you can get there. So maybe that's why, maybe that has something to do with why his stories don't have that same redemption because maybe he didn't feel like he got to uh, achieve his
0: dreams in life. Well, the problem with Chekhov very shaky four ball juggler right that was it <laughs> he, tried to, he tried to put an act together it just he just didn't have the he didn't have the chops you know so you know. yeah he did what he could he did what he could exactly exactly <laughs> well it's so exciting to see where you're going to go now you're still performing are you still doing uh sword swallowing i know that's one of your skills so that
1: was one of the worries with the uh with the neck surgery in particular i had lost a lot of my flexibility, so I was really struggling with that for a time. But that seems to have been slowly but surely coming back. I'm getting a lot of that back, and I'm doing a lot of the yoga. But, but yes, I, I'm performing. I, I'm ramping up a little bit more of my yoga lecture series, and I, I, I do these uh, teach-ins for yoga teachers in training, and I talk about sort of finding the edge and quieting the mind, and some of these other skill sets that I'll actually go into a lot of that in book number three. I'm also running my St. Pete Microfarm, my my home garden project, which uh, is another
0: longer-term goal, some of the things I want to do here. And then uh, multiple books on the way. And you also have been uh, doing some gigs as a duo. So even though you've gone past Rootberry and done solo work, your love of duo work has led you to into another sort of team act as well.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, after I started to recover, I got a couple of local gigs and I reached out to Noah Royak, uh, who's a local performer and said, Hey, you want to, you want to do a couple of these things with me and it'll be fun. And and we started working together and, uh, and yeah, we we had a really good time working together. And then we actually started picking up some of the uh, college market and he's at the point in his career where he's just about to just totally take off and skyrocket. And he, he's been developing a lot of totally unique and original routines and he's has got, he's going to leave me behind. No, <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, I feel like he's about to have the run that uh, Jonathan and I did. And as much as I love performing and everything, I don't think I want to have the gone 283 days a year run anymore. Yeah. I love going out and doing some shows and I don't mind flying out and doing a college here and there, or 12 days for a military tour or something. I'd love to do all that. But he, he's ready to have that full run, and I think I'm ready to keep performing locally. And, and you've, you've said this to me before. You, you, you've always said, you know, even if you kind of back off of the performing, don't ever stop. Just just keep, like, to put this much into it and then stop, don't do that. And, and I think that's such a wise piece of advice because even if we're not performing at the absolute peak level that we ever did, we still have an amazing amount of ability to to go out and entertain and put a smile on the face and just stay sharp with it. And and I think that there's a tremendous value with that as well.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future. I look forward to book number two and for all the listeners, don't forget you can go to amazon.com and pick up Bill Berry's new book, stories that move my life in many allegories. And of course, don't forget to leave a nice review and rating because that really helps authors like Bill with their careers. So uh, go out there, drop everything, but before you do, buy Bill's new book at Amazon.com. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for being on the podcast and being a guest on Drop Everything. And best of luck with your, your upcoming uh, books and your shows and all that life has to offer you. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure catching up with you and all the listeners. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 122. My conversation with juggler and author Bill Barry. Before you go to Amazon.com to purchase his new book, Stories That Move, check out juggle.org, the home of the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about this great group of jugglers and their yearly festival taking place next year in Green Bay, Wisconsin. All right, go out in the world and drop everything except when you're juggling.